Hi, everyone, and welcome to the What the Flip podcast. Don't let the name fool you. We talk about all things real estate investing in less than 30 minutes. Hi, everyone, and welcome back for part two of the How the F Do I Get Started? What the Flip podcast episode. Um, I just wanted to say happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. That's the reason I didn't record on Sunday. I was busy doing other important things. Uh, so please forgive me for that. But on a side note, I want to make the announcement that I'll be dropping new episodes and new podcast episodes on Wednesdays. From here on out, I'll be dropping new episodes on Wednesdays. So Sunday is no longer the day, switching days. There's a lot of reasons behind it, but Wednesday. Um, this episode is all about my first deal. I don't think I'll be able to get into as much of the numbers as I want to today because there's just so many things out there that I want to get uh, put into this episode. And as I said, I try to do it in 30 minutes or less. And I want to make sure that I give enough information out there that you guys really know how I looked at the first deal. So I'll give you a little bit of the numbers, but I'm not going to get into detail of the numbers. I'm going to get more into detail of the process of getting your first investment property, what that looks like, the money involved, things to consider, websites that I used, all that good stuff. So I'm going to give you all the secrets. They're not really secrets. You could Google all this stuff, but I like to think that they are. Um, so just to recap the last episode of how the F do I get started, there's four pillars of investment or property investing. And those four pillars are property, loan, expenses, return on investment. So if we remember, property is going to be Single family, multifamily, commercial, what are you buying? What is the building? Two is going to be loan. Is it going to be a uh, commercial loan? Is it going to be a non-conforming condo loan? Is it going to be a straightforward 20, 25% down regular residential loan? Three is expenses. Are you going to have a property manager? Are you going to pay for utilities? If so, are you paying for water? Are you paying for trash? What are your expenses for this property? And then four is going to be return on investment, which is how much money am I making on the money that I put into the deal? So four pillars of investing in real estate. So a little bit of history about my first deal. I looked at so many places and I put offers in on about three or four different places that I want to give you guys a true understanding of what it's like to get your first deal. And it's sometimes frustrating. I honestly spent a couple thousand dollars before I even got my first deal. And I'll explain why. When you buy an investment property, there's some things that you do that you wouldn't normally do when it comes to buying your, your primary residence. And that's, you look at a property in terms of how much is it going to cost you down the line? What items do I need to fix? What location is it in? Is this location going up? Is this location going down? Is it going to stay stable? You're looking at a lot of different factors. And the other thing too is that you're dealing with people who are also savvy buyers and savvy sellers. You're dealing with people who this has been their livelihood most likely and they've either done really well with this property or they've done poorly and they're trying to get away from it. But they understand how investors look at their property. Uh, and it's unlike buying a primary residence because you buy a primary residence based on emotion and you buy a investment property based on facts. And so when I was looking for my first investment property, I put a lot of offers in and 
Um, a lot of them did get accepted, so I was very lucky because it was a, a very hot market. But um, what ended up costing me money is inspections. Inspections on properties is a huge deal that not a lot of first-time buyers account for. Um, and basically, an inspection is sending somebody in there who's been certified to look at the entire house from top to bottom, looking at major systems, so your HVAC, your furnace, your AC unit, um, your water heater, um, your roof, plumbing, all that good stuff, electrical, and letting you know what's in good shape and what's not, and kind of giving you an idea of how long those items are going to last or what needs to be replaced, what needs attention. And these usually run anywhere from low end about two, $300 to um, I just bought a commercial property and the inspection on that was about 1500 And that was pretty cheap for an, a, a commercial property of that size. So that's kind of what started to cost me some money. The first place I looked at had a massive mold problem that we had no idea of until um, we thought about talking when we spoke with the tenant, the tenant said there's a slow leak in the ceiling and that they patched it a few times, but that it just keeps coming back. And I didn't really put two and two together until I got the report. And apparently in the attic, there's nothing but mold. It was going to take a lot of money to do mold remediation and be my first property. It's just something that I, I didn't want to touch. Um, looking back on a lot of these things with your first property, you're going to be like, why didn't I just go ahead and, and get a good deal on that property and, and make it work? But when it's your first property, it's a little scary and you kind of want to start off on the right foot. And I didn't feel that that was a good property to start off on. Um, the second property was kind of an odd situation. It was a duplex, but during the appraisal process, we realized that the city had no idea that it was a duplex. They thought it was a single family home. And so we were going to have to pull some items out of that bottom unit to make it a single family home until we closed. And then we we're going to put the items back in and then turn it back into a duplex. Um, and that one too, looking back on it, I should have done it. It's probably worth about $70,000 more than what we were looking at it at that point in time. But once again, it's a scary thing and you don't know what that means down the road. And I can talk about some of these things in later episodes, but you don't want to take a huge risk. At least I didn't want to take a huge risk when I was buying my first rental property. And so I kind of stuck to stuff that I knew. And that's how I came across. One of my buddies said, hey, there's a house that's about to go back on the market. Uh, it was a flip that a guy had done. And uh, he did the inside really well. The outside still needed some work. But uh, the inside was nice. And so I got the scoop on it. And as $165,000, really close to campus, four bedroom, two bath, uh, we went ahead and put an offer in on it and the offer was accepted. And so step one is putting an offer in. The next thing you're going to do immediately after you put an offer in is they're going to require what's called earnest money. And earnest money is basically saying that I'm going to give you a chunk of money that's going to go towards the deal as long as I perform as a buyer. And when I say I perform as a buyer, it means I make it all the way through the process. And if I don't, I give you a written explanation as to why I'm canceling the contract under the deadlines that I'm canceling the contract because of. So uh, there's five or six major deadlines in a um, real estate transaction. And those are going to be um, your inspection. They're going to be your appraisal. They're going to be your loan objection. Um, 
and they're going to be your inspection resolution. So each one of those has a deadline that if you cancel within that deadline, you'll get your money back. If you cancel outside of that deadline, the seller gets to keep your earnest money. Earnest money is usually about 1% of the entire deal. So uh, here in Colorado, it's a bit different. Um, it's anywhere from 1% to 2%. And then in Kansas, it's like three to 500 bucks, no matter what the size of the deal is, which is great. I love it. But uh, here in Colorado, yeah, it's usually 1% to 2% of the deal. Um, so if it's a $100,000 home, usually it's $1,000 earnest money. Uh, and earnest money, for the most part, comes back to you. As long as you follow the contract and you cancel uh, within your deadlines for the reason that you want um, to cancel for, whatever it may be, you'll get your earnest money back. But you have to know that there is a possibility of losing it. So you'll put your earnest money in after the contract's accepted. The very next thing you're going to do is you're going to schedule your inspection. And so we scheduled an inspection and the inspection came back pretty good. Uh, we had some issues with the roof that we had to sort out. There was a claim put on the roof and the roof was never replaced. So we had to figure out how old the roof was. And um, the insurance company really wanted to know. Um, and during the inspection, that's a great time to get a quote from your insurance company as well. And so um, your agent can give you all the information that you need to give to your insurance company because normally they'll ask you, uh, the square footage of the home, what is it made out of? Is it mostly brick? Is it wood? How old is the roof? Are there any claims out there? Um, you know, what kind of flooring does it have? Uh, how old is the house? Do you know if it has lead paint? Uh, they'll ask you all those things and they'll be able to give you a quote and usually uh, sometimes less than a day, usually a day or two. Um, but it's good to know because some homes do come back with a way higher insurance than you'd expect. And if you don't have that valued into the deal, you're going to end up being off on your numbers. So during your inspection is a good time to get a quote on the insurance. Even before you put an offer in, you can call your insurance company and get a quote from them and, and get a good idea of where you're going to be for expenses. Um, so like I said, the inspection came back and we had a few items to negotiate. And so what you can do during that period is you can either, there's three routes. You can either cancel the contract because you don't like what you saw in the inspection, like I did with the mold house, or you can ask for those items to be fixed. Um, and so that's basically just going to the seller. And if say there's windows that are cracked, you ask for those windows to be replaced. If plumbing's leaking, you ask for that plumbing to be fixed. Uh, and usually you ask for some form of guarantee. So you say at closing, I want receipts from a certified plumber. I want receipts from a licensed contractor or whoever might be doing the work. Uh, you just want to see that, that information. The third way is to ask for a seller concession. And so a seller concession is basically the seller saying, I see your point and I'm going to give you some money at the end of the deal. And usually that money is in the form of a seller concession and that can be applied towards a lot of different things. Your down payment, uh, it can be applied towards closing cost. Um, usually banks have a cap on how much in seller concessions you can get. So you can't just say, you know, I want to get $10,000 in seller concessions on a $100,000 deal. A lot of banks have a cap and it's somewhere between three and 6% most likely uh, of the entire deal. So on a $100,000 deal, it would be, you know, $3,000 to $6,000 is the cap for seller concessions. So after you've negotiated all the items from the inspection, the next thing that you're going to do 
is you're going to have an appraisal. And so the bank is going to send their person out there. And what they're going to do is they're basically going to do what the real estate agent did at the beginning of the deal. The real estate agent looks at all the solds, all the pendings, all the stuff on the market and says, based on what I see around you, this is how much you should sell your house for. The bank is going to do the same thing. And what they're doing during the appraisal is they're verifying the cost of the house equals what they see as all the units around and their comparison value. And so they'll say, okay, the house is selling for $100,000 and that's what you have it under contract for. But this house over here is selling for $80,000 and this house over here is selling for $90,000. So how are those houses different from this one? And they'll piece together everything. So they'll look at square footage. They'll look at finishes. So does it have hardwood floors? Does it have carpet? Does it have granite? Does it have a finished basement? Does it have a one-car garage versus a two-car garage? They're just making sure that the amount of money that they're going to loan you is equal to the value of the house. They don't want to loan you $100,000 on a house that's only worth $50,000. They want to make sure that they're making a good investment just like you are. Uh, So it's nice because when an appraisal does come back a little bit low, you have an opportunity to go back to the seller and negotiate at that point. So if the bank says, hey, this $100,000 house that you have under contract is only worth ninety dollars when we do our comparison, you can go to the seller and say, this is what the bank says. If you want to move forward, we need to renegotiate. And so at that point in time, if it does come back low, you have the opportunity to go to the seller and ask them to lower the price to the new value you have an opportunity to either bring that extra money. So if it's valued at 90,000, but you have it under contract for a hundred thousand, you can bring $10,000 extra to the deal. A lot of people don't do that, or you can terminate the contract at that point in time. So when we got our valuation back, we had it under contract for 165 and lo and behold, the value came back at 165. Uh, For those of you that aren't agents, you'll, you'll, you don't quite get the the irony in that. But for those of you who are agents, you know that 80% of the time, I would say almost 90% of the time, the value of whatever the house is, is usually what the appraiser comes back with. I'm sorry, appraisers, if you're listening, it just seems to be a trend out there that if the house is valued at 200,000, ironically, the appraiser comes back at 200,000. I don't know. It's a mystery. We'll never know the true answer. So, appraisal is something else that costs money. And so if you get to that point in time in the contract, hopefully you're ready to go through with it because an appraisal for the most part gets rolled into your loan, but um, an appraisal can cost you, you know, a couple hundred dollars to a thousand dollars, depending on how large the property is. Um, The last property, like I said, the commercial property was $3,500 is how much the appraisal was for the commercial property I just purchased. So, um, It is usually rolled into a loan, but if for some reason you walk away from the deal, usually the bank is going to charge you that appraisal fee. Uh, Very rarely do they uh, waive that fee for you. So once you get through all that and you get to the closing table, looking at your loan, you're going to have all these costs that you didn't know about. And usually they're called closing costs. Usually it's one to 2% of the entire loan. So uh, it, when closing with the bank, just be prepared that, you know, if they're going to give you a loan for $100,000, that most likely you're going to have an extra $1,000 to $2,000 in just closing costs. And those include recording fees and sometimes the appraisal and um, document fees and all sorts of fees that you have never thought of that the title company charges you for. Um, 
and then you're done. You've bought the property, you've closed, you've done all that good stuff. And the next question is now what do I do? So for us, we had just closed on this four bedroom, two bath, close to campus, very first rental property. Um, I talked to quite a few people on what do I do? How do I get started? Um, the first thing that you're going to do is you're going to make sure that you clean the property head to toe and make it rent ready. So like I said, this property was just flipped. And so it was spotless. Nobody had lived in it just yet. But the problem was, is that it was good for pictures and good for showings, but there's things that needed to be fixed before a tenant can move in. And so I needed to change some of the locks because they didn't work right. Uh, I needed to seal some stuff in the bathroom because uh, the caulking around the tub wasn't very good. Just be aware and look for those things. Look for stuff that could cost you money down the road. So, you know, if the light switch doesn't work and it's not as big deal, just have somebody come in and check it out. You want to make sure that you're setting yourself up for uh, success and not setting yourself up for failure and and not doing those small things will set you up for failure. You, you never know what not, you know, cocking a tub or not changing a light switch could lead to down the road. And it's a small fix. So if you've just spent $100,000 on a property, it's worth it to spend an extra couple hundred dollars to get those items fixed. So we got the property clean. We got it ready. Next up is pictures. The reason you get the property clean is because you want to take nice pictures. And a lot of people think that you can just go in and snap pictures and it'll be perfectly fine, but there's a layout to everything. You want to make sure that you get uh, either a professional or if you know how to take the right angle of pictures, you want to make sure you maximize the space, you get good lighting in there, you take quality pictures that aren't fuzzy, uh, that don't have people standing in them, that don't have clutter in them. You want to treat it as if you were about to sell the house. You want people who are looking to potentially move into this place and make it their home to feel like it's home. Um, think of renting your property as in selling your primary residence. If you're selling your home, you're not going to half-ass it. You want to make sure that you're putting your best foot forward. And so um, by taking quality pictures and getting the right picture to be your picture that shows up when people search for your property, those are important facts. And so I say, if you don't have that skill set, if you don't have a nice camera, if you haven't figured out how to get the best settings on the iPhone, have somebody else do it. It's usually a hundred bucks, maybe 150 at the most. If you find the right person, they can take quality pictures for you and show off your property correctly. Um, from there, it's going to be, where do I list this property? And the easiest place. And like I said, I get no kickbacks. I wish I did turbo tenant. If you're listening, please uh, be a sponsor, but TurboTenant.com has been an amazing resource when I got started. Uh, it's basically in completely free. It will list it to all the websites, so Zillow, Trulia, everything that's out there. The only thing they won't list it to is Craigslist. And they'll even give you a link and tell you exactly how to post it on Craigslist. Um, so they give you all the information out there. And then the next best thing about TurboTenant is not only does it help bring in leads, but it will help do the background checks for you. And so how it works, and there's other websites out there that probably do the exact same thing, but when you have a prospective tenant, you'll tell them, hey, I need your email, and they'll give you the email and say, I'll send you a link. The link will take you to the background check. All you do is you fill out the information. The company, not me, the company will charge you 
you know, $35, $40 right then and there to do the background check and then all get the results. And it kind of takes you out of taking any fees or collecting any fees um, and puts it all on turbo tenant. So that way you're not feeling responsible if they get denied that you took some money from them. So turbo tenant within 24 to 48 hours will usually give you the results of the screening. Um, and it'll give you everything from previous evictions to um, credit score to credit history to jobs, if they have any of that information. Um, and then it'll verify their identity as well. TurboTenant is great, and there's other resources out there, like I said, but it's just an all-in-one easy package, and I love it. So if you're looking for something to get started with, TurboTenant is going to be something that works for you. Once you have the tenant, and we got lucky enough to find some good college students, you know, and before the college students, we didn't get so lucky, and I'll, I'll give those stories <laughs> as we get into other episodes, but... Um, we had them all checked out and every single person who's above 18, we had fill out this thing. So uh, it gives you a background on every single person who's going to live in the property. And that's the best way to go. I'd recommend that anytime you have anybody moving in, even if it's their kid, if they're older than 18, I would definitely have them fill out an application and get their background history. Uh, and then once you have a tenant, the next thing is going to be what forms do I use? And so there's a lot of stuff out there. There's Rocket Lawyer, there's Bigger Pockets, there's LegalZoom. All of those sites have forms on them that you can use, and they're all state specific. I use Rocket Lawyer, and the reason I use Rocket Lawyer is because I've been using it for years. It allows me to enter in stuff, edit stuff, print it out. Um, you know, I, I have one for Kansas, I have one for Colorado, I have one for Missouri. It work, just works really well for me. But I know that Bigger Pockets and LegalZoom have almost the exact same thing. So you can use any of those. But what forms you're going to need is you're going to need a move-in checklist. You're going to need your lease. You're going to need a pet agreement. You're going to need an insurance waiver. And what an insurance waiver is, is basically saying that I have insurance on the property. You can choose to get rental insurance if you want. But if you don't, please understand that if something happens to the property, I am only covering the house and none of the personal belongings. And so by having them sign this, you're basically making them acknowledge that they have the opportunity to buy insurance and they're choosing to do so or not do so. And um, you just want to make sure you cover your bases because people could come back and say, I never knew I could get renter's insurance and I thought their insurance covered me. You just with rental properties like everything else in the United States, just make sure you cover your ass like that's what you want to do is more documentation, the better. Pictures, videos, all that good stuff. Text messages. Keep everything that you ever do with any tenant. You just never know what's going to come back. Uh, and then the last thing you're going to do is have a utility sheet. And this is something that I created, and maybe it's out there as well, but every utility for the property I have, what utility you need to call, the number to call, uh, trash cans and what the trash date is or trash pickup time is. Um, I just want them to be able to switch everything into their name as easy as possible. Uh, and then it also has my information on there and it has when the rent due is when the late fee hits and um, how to contact me. So that's just kind of a, a rundown of the first property and I'll give you a quick overview. So we bought the property 165,000. It was a four bed, two bath. Um, we used turbo tenant to find the tenant 
we used Rocket Lawyer to create the lease, um, and we used Turbo Tenant to do the background check. And then I used the utility sheet to get them set up for all the utilities. Uh, and then what you want to do is you want to figure out where they're going to make the payments to. And so I set up a PO box just because I didn't want them to have my home address. Uh, there's multiple ways that you can collect the rent. You can use uh, apps. I don't recommend using Venmo. Um, I just don't feel very good about it just yet. Uh, you can give them literally your account number because if they have your account number, they can go into a bank and deposit. Um, they can't take money out if they have the just the account number, but they can make a deposit there. Uh, and if you do go that route, I do recommend creating a bank account strictly for rental properties and whatever property it is. So that way they don't have or feel like they have access to any of your other information. Um, there's just so much to it. Like I, I wish I could go into more detail in this episode, but I'm coming up on the 30 minutes. I just really wanted to give you an overview of how the first property was purchased. Um, in the next episode, I'll talk about the numbers of the first property. And so uh, this isn't really going to be a one, two, and three parter, but the whole next episode is literally going to be the numbers uh, and kind of my experience, my first six months of the property. So you can have a cool understanding of what happened to me and the mistakes that I made and how to avoid those mistakes. But you'll also be able to see uh, if you've seen my Facebook page, uh, I posted, hey, how would you like to add $7,000 to your bank account? That's what we made the first year. We made $7,500 off of our rental property the first year. And, and we did have some issues, uh, which we had an eviction and we had to do some stuff and they wouldn't communicate with us and they kind of dropped off the map. So I'll go over how to handle those kind of tenants and, and what are some good options and um, also what the numbers look like on that. So Please make sure you join us next week. Remember, we're switching from Sundays to Wednesday. And you can find me on Facebook at Legacy Investment Holdings. And you can find me on Instagram at the same name, Legacy Investment Holdings. But as always, please like, subscribe, comment. Um, I apologize for getting out here late. You know, Wednesday is going to be the new day. But thanks for sticking with me. And you guys have a great evening.